continuing today in chapter 13, starting with the 13th verse. So feel free to follow along with me as we read that text. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Thank you, Kyle. Greetings from Israel. Four of our guys are in the middle of their trip to Israel, uh, taping at least 66 videos. So they are obviously having a great time, but they're also uh, spending a lot of hours wearing themselves out. So be praying for them. Uh, these are brothers that I get to work with on a regular basis, people we love, um, who are, have a great opportunity for us. We're going to bless, be blessed by the videos and the teaching and just putting ourselves in the theography. I like that word. I think it works. The theography of the text. So pray for Jim and Steve and Ryan and Justin as they continue that. Pray also for about the 200 or so that are uh, in places like New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, having church right now. In Dallas, uh, inner city, having church right now. Uh, and down home ranch, having church as well. Pray for these, as well as a crew that's even down in Mexico working uh, with Matt and Crossroads down there. So we have a lot of people gone, uh, but there's a lot of people here. And uh, so I am just uh, thankful for the opportunity to open the scriptures and look at a, a text that I think is pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, as Kyle was reading there at the very end, it's just kind of amazing when you think of the response. He read this sermon by Paul and the response is they were begging to hear more from him that he would come back next week and speak. Uh, we're going to follow the responses uh, to the message of the gospel throughout the book of Acts. And it's always amazing that the response is not always the same. Even later in our text next week, we'll see that even the response in Pisidian Antioch was a little bit different as well. Um, I think everybody loves a good story. Um, and it's really good that when you have a good story, or if you're a person who likes to tell jokes, uh, that you probably have the, the, the joke line plot right on display. Like, if you're going to tell a joke, you need to have that part of your story together, or the joke just doesn't come off. And we kind of groan in those moments when those don't happen. So I'm not going to tell a joke because I would screw it up. But I do love to hear kids tell, tell, uh, tell jokes, right? And uh, Canyon uh, Ebert. Um, Morgan was telling me the story of Canyon, and Canyon is at a great age, and he's just so full of enjoyment and joy, and he loves to tell knock-knock jokes. But at his age, he loves to tell knock-knock jokes that he hasn't yet quite grasped. And so he's kind of making them up as he goes. So he goes, knock-knock, and Morgan goes, well, who's there? And he looks around, water bottle, water bottle who? And then he says, water bottle, and laughs, and that's his joke, right? I mean, his age uh, tells us the joke that he has. And so we all love a good story. We all love a good joke. Um, but it, it's kind of sad that when we, if we told a story without a point, we would try to wonder why there was a story in the first place. Um, so we love stories. My, my granddaughters love uh, good stories, and so I'm going to blame them for a decision I made about three months ago. Okay, actually, it's not their fault. It was mine, and, and you'll understand why here in a minute. Um, so I was looking on my phone, and you know something popped up 
on my phone, and it said, congratulations, um, you've won a $1,000 gift card. I was like, oh, awesome. And it has to be true because it, it listed my uh, nephew uh, Lane had won, and now you, all you have to do is just check in, and they will send you this $1,000, I think, Walmart gift card. <clears throat> and I've been down this trail before, so don't feel sorry for me. I, it's not like I haven't seen this before, but I still pushed on it. Yeah, I just had to admit that. I pushed on this, and he said, yeah, just, just follow a few simple steps, and, and you'll, that $1,000 will be coming your way. I thought, oh, this is great. Walmart, you know, $1,000 Walmart, everything you need there at Walmart, that'd be awesome, right? And so I started to do the survey and answer easy questions. Like, and it was awesome because it was easy questions, and it was also giving you the percentages of how much of the survey was about to be done. Jumped to 25%. Oh, good, I'm almost done with the questions. Got to 50 75%. Really, this is only taking like 42 seconds. This isn't a problem. And then it started to slow down, and it said, hey, you know, I was just asking, would you be interested in these products? No, 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 no. I, I kind of said yes on something, and that stopped it in its tracks. And it said, hey, well, basically, the story is this. I bought, for only 99 cents, free shipping, three Disney books, you know, for, for, for 99 cents, that's 33 cents a piece. I thought, well, that's not a problem. Checked in, did that. Started back in the survey again. No big deal. Uh, and then it, it slowed down. It got to 75%. And then after three questions, 76%. Three more questions, 69%. I was like, okay, done. Check, I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this. And I've been paying for it on a couple of ways. One is emails that have been coming since. And the other is that my credit card bill has this interesting $22 every month for new books that they're sending my way. And Julie says, you need to take care of that. And so I tried. Anybody been on this little scam? I mean, you try to follow the processes, and you try to push the things, and it takes you to something else. And I was getting frustrated and put it away, forget about it, and the next credit card bill comes, like, you got to do something about that $22 bill. Uh, but we were getting more books. They just weren't 99 cents or 33 cents a piece. Finally, I, I did the phone call, 1-800-CALL, rip-off number, you know, 1-800-RIP-OFF, and <clears throat> got the number and waited for 17 minutes in my office for them to finally give me a live caller, and I was able to get out of, well, at least I hope so, because credit card bill comes in the next week or so, and we'll see if, if I'm still paying or not. You know, I mean, I, I just need to admit that to you, but I, I think I got my money's worth this weekend. Uh, because this weekend, Austin, our youngest, and his beautiful wife and their three lovely kids came to visit for the weekend. And, and so I got to spend a lot of time along with my wife and my daughter and my son and his wife uh, reading Disney books. My, my daughter-in-law, Malia, smiled and just thanks for the books. But these books weren't those books, you know, that you can flip in three turns, you know, and then be done. Now, these are the 40-page varieties, like with full sentences and full paragraphs, and 25 minutes later, you're done reading the book. And uh, so I, I got my money's worth. I'm the morning rotation at our house. I get up early, and everybody else is asleep, and, but the little girls wake up, and you know the only time I can get them to sit on my lap is, read me a book, Poppy. And so we sat and have this picture of the two on my lap with a blankie, and we're reading Winnie the Pooh or Little Mermaid or think of every Disney book in the world and we have it. And, and so reading those, I got my money's worth. You know, they love a good story. And it's kind of interesting 
those girls are old enough, one's almost four and the other's two, that they are starting to play out the story. You know what I'm saying? And it's just fun to watch. And since there's an older and a younger, there is a role that is being played. And I started to notice, as I saw Olivia, she always played the hero person. Right? She always played person like, uh, you know, like Ariel. And her sister was Ursula. Okay, you know where I'm going? I, didn't, I haven't seen the movie, but I found out, I, I googled, and you know, Ursula is the witch, right? You know, uh, if she is this, somebody's scar, right? You know, I have all these names, and, and, and the youngest doesn't care. She doesn't mind not being, being whoever she is. She's just in the play. Um, and and, and I, I think it's interesting that we love a good story, and if we really love the story, we love to retell that story. Right? Or we want somebody, hey, tell them that story. Because we want everybody to hear the story that is out there. You see, little granddaughters love a good story. I think everybody loves one. And in Acts chapter 13, we get to hear probably the most amazing story. This isn't the first time that Paul's preached. Um, if you look in Acts, we don't, we don't see necessarily what he said, but... There are times when he, after his conversion, went immediately into Damascus and began to reason and speak and try to persuade people to Jesus' side. And so we see these pictures of him. But on this journey, this is in Acts, the first recorded sermon story that Paul is recorded of having. And so it's, it's a powerful text in Acts 13. You just heard it read. Um, and, and so we see this, the story of how the church progressed. Uh, let me set the story for you. You know, I mean, like any good Disney story or like any good story worth repeating, you need to know the characters involved. And, and again, and as we look at this text, we see, first of all, that he is preaching to a certain group of people, right? <clears throat> and so we see that kind of going on. We see these, it says, uh, Jewish people and God-fearers. And so we see them in the synagogue. And so basically, without explanation, Jews and Gentiles. So all kinds of people came to the situation and began to hurt it. I can't help but think of Dallas Inner City. Uh, some of you have been to that place. And, and when they have church, I mean, there's, there's, there's just the way that Community Care Fellowship does church. And if you're going to attend their Sunday service, you need to be prepared, kind of like in this situation, <clears throat> that when they read the text, they looked to their visitors and asked, do you have anything that you would like to say? which actually might be the sermon for the day. So I think Alan might be preaching today. He may, not, he may be stepping out just in time when they're getting ready to ask. But this is what's going on in here. And there's a couple of other characters, and, and one of them you've seen in Acts, and the other one you might have noticed that we've read his name a time or two, but I thought this would be a good time to develop the characters that are in the story in Acts 13. The first guy we see here is John Mark. Uh, in this text, all we see in that verse is, and then John left them, and returned to Jerusalem. Okay? Seems like a bit part. Seems like something you, you show up on a Saturday and they may choose you to be in a movie and you say, hello. You know, I mean, no. But there's more to his story. And I think if we're going to understand this story, it might be important for us to know who John Mark is. We're introduced to John Mark first of the time in Acts 12. You may not have noticed it. You may have read that section when we talked about this a few weeks ago. But when Peter was in prison... 
and he was miraculously let go. The Spirit of God came in and freed the chains, and he's kind of walking in a, <coughs> in a, in a daze out into the city, and then he recognizes, I'm not in jail. <coughs> he runs to Mary's house where a group of people were praying. Well, Mary is John Mark's mom. Huh. So John Mark has grown up a part of this, this, this church that is actually under persecution in Jerusalem. They're hiding with the doors kind of locked. And they're praying to a God for, for Peter, who has been put in prison, that he might, you know, we think maybe be let out or just praying that he would die well or that he would, he would live and honor Christ in this process. And that was the home of John Mark. We see that there. We see John Mark later, um, kind of in passing, just kind of in the sidebars of, of Scripture, <clears throat> when Barnabas and Ball had come down to uh, Judea or Jerusalem. They had come down from Antioch because there was a famine in the land. And so in the land of Jerusalem, in that area, there wasn't any water. And, and so since this was the church and it was growing, and, and you remember they had so many needs of so many. Remember the widows they had to take care of? There were so many they needed to feed. And now it was, there was not any rain. There was a famine. And they were preparing. And they sent out to the scattered church, saying, if you could send any kind of monetary funds back to Jerusalem, that would be real helpful in us taking care of the needs of the church here locally. And sure enough, Paul and Barnabas made a trip from Antioch down to Jerusalem. And it tells us, you know, just kind of in the passing of, of what happened there, uh, on their way back, they took John Mark back to Antioch with them. And so this is where we see John Mark in Antioch as a part of the ministry. Last week, another little sideline. It tells us that when Paul and Barnabas were set off on this first journey, uh, that they took John Mark as an assistant. Kind of an interesting word. We, we kind of understand what that word means, assistant. It's really interesting, especially in synagogue language, that the assistant, this word is used oftentimes there, it is the person who helps in the teaching in the synagogue. And in the process of teaching that um, in the synagogue, that the assistant also typically did the teaching in the synagogue with the children. And so I think it's fair to say that maybe John Mark might be the first youth minister, kids minister in the Bible. I think that's fascinating as we, we hear this incredible story. But for some reason, Luke records that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And we don't know why until Acts 15. After they get back from that first journey and they come back to Antioch and then Antioch sends them again to do another journey to go back and revisit churches, Barnabas and Paul say, who are we going to take with us? And Barnabas says, well, why don't we take my cousin, John Mark? And it tells us that Paul says, I do not want to take him because he has deserted us. Ah, wow, wait, wait, there's more story to this John Mark guy. He deserted us. Wow, that... That says something a little bit different than he just left. You know, we don't know why he deserted. Scripture doesn't tell us. Uh, obviously, if you ask people, everybody has an opinion. Some said he might have been homesick. Some said he, he got scared <laughs> and he ran. That makes sense after, you know, Paul, you know, calls this guy out and he becomes blind. Wait a minute, I don't know what's going to happen here. Maybe he was just not physically fit. That's my, that's my opinion. Because when they came to southern Turkey from the Mediterranean Sea at zero sea level, right? They had to cross a mountain range. 
3,600 feet. Okay? Think Denver at 5,200 and trying to get to Idaho Springs, right? At 8,500. 8, this is what they were doing. And so it wasn't an easy trip, right? And to get into Pisidian and Antioch, and he goes, wait a minute. I didn't know. I didn't bring, like, my good Adidas sandals on this trip. I don't know, right? All we know is Paul says he deserted. That's a pretty strong word. But that's not the rest of the story. We don't know why he deserted him, but we do know at the end of Paul's life. And this is why I think it's fascinating. As we start to look at and uncover the letters of Paul, he wrote, he wrote two letters, pretty much most people would say about the same time. One to Colossae and one to Philemon about a certain situation. And in both of those texts, uh, at the very end of those texts, he, he just gives us some information, just some side, again, side notes. And in Colossians 4, verses 10 and 11, he says, Welcome him, i.e., John, for he has been a comfort to me. John Mark. Later in Philemon, written probably at the same time, it meant that he was, he was saying the same things. Greetings on behalf of Mark. Like, I'm sitting here, and again, the context matters. So he's writing the Church of Colossae while he's in prison, basically house arrest in Rome. And guess who's hanging out in Rome with him? John Mark. John Mark is hanging out with Paul, the one who said that what John Mark deserted. Why would Paul have him with him? I don't know, other than something got resolved, right? Yeah, it's kind of important to know John Mark because later we, we know that uh, in Peter, First Peter, Peter talks about, at the end of his letter, his closeness and relationship with Peter. He calls Mark his son. So there's a friendship going there. So, you know, if Mark, if Peter was still in Jerusalem for a time, then maybe Mark, who may have been discipled by him, was in that situation. But, he, but it tells us that Mark continued his work with Peter in Rome later as an interpreter and as a gatherer of his writings. And this is where we get, which is pretty awesome, this is where we get Peter's account of Jesus, which is called the Gospel of Mark. Okay, That's kind of important to know. Maybe not for this specific text, but it needs to know in, in the developing of the characters of what we're reading, <clears throat> that John Mark wasn't just a name, but there was a story behind him. The story would tell him. There's another character here, Barnabas, one of my favorite, favorite guys in all of Scripture. You guys are familiar with him. We haven't really stopped in the Acts series to talk about him. But in Acts 4, he was called the son of encouragement. There's a situation where they're kind of doing a synopsis of what is happening in the church. Peter preaches, and then thousands join, on and on, and then people are, are nervous, but they're still coming to the Lord. And it tells the story of Barnabas, who sold a field, and he got money for that field, and then he went and he gave it, and he put it at the feet of the, the apostles. He, he felt the desire that I have something that I can give to the cause of the church and what they're after, and I want to do that. Barnabas, we learn about him later um, as, as one after Saul's conversion. So he's on the road to Damascus. He's, he sees Jesus. He comes to Christ. Uh, the scales fall off his eyes. He goes into Damascus, and it tells us that Paul immediately goes in, or, and, or Saul at the time, and he starts to refute and argue with the people about how Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of Scripture. 
And we see the situation. Paul, because he is so adamant in what he's trying to preach, people there are trying to kill him. And so he sneaks out through the, the, the believers there and he escapes through the side of the wall. Not sure where he goes next, so he goes down to Jerusalem. The very place where he was working for the other side, if you will. He goes down there. <clears throat> he wants to meet with the apostles. So he's so excited about what God has done in his life. And he goes down there and the apostles are like, oh, can we trust this guy? I don't know if we can trust him, right? Barnabas is the one who goes and finds him in his discouragement and brings him to the apostles and said, hey, let me stand up for this guy. It's legit. And so Barnabas does that. Later, we talked about <clears throat> that they brought the, uh, that they came down from Antioch and that's where they picked up John Mark. But before that, Barnabas was at the church in Jerusalem and they had heard some things that concerned them and excited them, but they didn't know all the facts. And they sent Barnabas to the church in Antioch uh, to go and find out exactly just what's going on up there. And Barnabas comes back with a glowing response like God is moving there. Jews and Gentiles are coming to Jesus. This is awesome. And while he's up there, you know what he does? He goes and he gets Paul or Saul in Tarsus, his hometown, where he'd been hanging out, not in ministry necessarily as the way we would see it, brings him to Antioch and allows him to be a part of the church and the growing that is happening there. Right? So Barnabas plays a role. Uh, it's also interesting in this text. This is something that I won't spend a lot of time on, but Barnabas uh, was, as we looked in Acts, and when Barnabas and Paul were together here earlier in Acts 13 and in 12, it was always Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But from this point forward, it becomes Saul, now Paul, and Barnabas. So a lot of scholars love to talk about the change, maybe the roles changed, and who was leading became uh, a different person that Paul began leading. I think it's an amazing character in this text. As we develop this story, two key components around the text. But I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the main character. The main character in this text about talking about the growth of the church and what is happening here. We see this main character being resolved in Acts 13. I don't know if you noticed when Kyle was reading the text, that was a long text, 30 some verses, right? 31 verses. And did you catch how many times that the mention that God is doing something is in the text? See, the main character is not Paul. The main character is God. You see, Jesus' story that we find at the culmination of this sermon is God's story from the beginning. 16 different times in these few verses, probably in the next 10 verses, there's talking of God who permeates all the text. Let me rush through these. You got your Bible. Do you want to fly with me on these? This is great. But verse 17, just quickly, God chooses Israel from all people of the earth for his special purposes. That God did that. See what I'm saying? God said, I want Israel to be my people. And he chooses them. He pulls them out. It says, it was God who made the people great during their stay in Egypt. We know how they got to Egypt, right? Slavery, Joseph, slavery, Pharaoh. It was God who grew them. It tells us that the numbers became as busy as the sand on the seashore in that moment. God grew them. Same verse, God 17, or verse 17. God led them out of Egypt by his mighty arm, by his strong arm, by his power. 
God flexes his muscles in this moment, an awesome display of his power. God meant to be seen as the mighty deliverer of his people. Verse 18, God uh, puts up with his people. I thought it was interesting, Kyle talked about how, aren't we glad that God doesn't need a break from us? (laughs) Here would have been one of those break times. Like tired of some people whining and crying you know, how do you respond to that? I'm glad that God puts up with. I love the verse there, or the word it has a deeper meaning than just puts up. Some text called bore with, which I think is an interesting word. But it's also this idea of translating endured or carried like a father carries his children. You see, God is father. God is mighty deliverer of his people. God is guide and sustainer. Verse 19, it was God who destroyed the seven nations In the land of Canaan. You know, man swung the swords, right? Man did the mighty work of the battle, but like Proverbs 21 tells us, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And it says, God, verse 19, gave them the land as an inheritance, it was his to give. He willed it to Israel. And I think that sometimes, again, we can read this and just go right by it. That for someone to be able to give an inheritance, they must own what they are giving as an inheritance. And that's God. It was his to give to those who would trust him. Psalms 95, the, the psalmist says, the earth and the land is yours. Verse 20, God gave Israel judges. Judges didn't show up and go, hey, what should we do? <clears throat> God put them in place. God raised them up. Verse 21, God gave them their first king, right? We know the story. They, they wanted a king. God says, you don't need a king, you have me. But God gave them a king in Saul. And then in the same verse, and he removed King Saul. Can't help but think of Daniel. The book of Daniel, as the writer says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Chapter four, he says this, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. God removed Saul. And then verse 22, God raised up David, the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. Again, we know David, oh wow, David, the mighty king, the killer of Goliath, all the amazing things he did. But at this time, it was just David, number eight of eight. David, who his dad didn't even bring in front of the line to put in front of Samuel to pick. They had to go find him. This David, that God raised up David, this son. It's God's doing. Verse 23, amazing verse. As he transitions from David to Jesus, a lot like Peter did in Acts chapter 2, he says it was God who brought Israel a Savior, Jesus. You see, God was not some personal or impersonal force behind the flow of history The text says that God did, I love this, as he promised. This was his plan. This was what he set out to do. He fulfilled everything that he was going to do. He he did this as he promised. See, God just wasn't as active in the moment of Jesus entering the world. God, who's been somewhere, he created the world and left this to us. No, he's been in process the whole time. He has been the prime mover. He is the major character in all of Scripture He didn't just show up and gave us Jesus because we screwed up. It was a part of his plan when Jesus entered the world. 
He had set things up. He planned it long ago and he spoke of it long ago. So when it happened, we would know he was doing it. 24, 25, I forgot that he, he mentions John the Baptist here. It's an interesting quote. We know the story of John the Baptist. He was preaching this uh, sermon of repentance, right? It was baptism of repentance. And, and we see this, but the amazing quote is what he quotes here of John the Baptist. Oh, wait, you guys want to make me king? You want to put me up in some kind of political realm? No, don't do that. I, I, I tell you, I, I can't even tie his shoes. John the Baptist, who was great in the eyes of the people for what he was preaching so courageously, said, hey, wait, this is not about me. There's one coming, and he points to him. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. He takes the attention of himself and puts it on Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, and the Anointed One. You see, the character and the actor behind the message has been sent, and it is God. God planned it. God accomplished it in Jesus, and God is sending him. Verses 27 and 28, Paul goes out of his way, and this is just fascinating from 28 all the way down into the 30s for the next several verses. He starts to give this picture of, of going out of his way that even when people do dumb things, God is in control. You know, even when <coughs> people who don't know God or who were out of step with God, could not understand God's mode of operation through the prophets, he fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. You see, God is the central character actor, whether we acknowledge him or not. He is getting his work done even through those who do not see him. And in verse 29, even in the taking of the body off of the cross and laying him in the tomb, they were fulfilling what God had ordained from the beginning. God's plan is not thwarted, by man. This was not a work of man, but God. And finally, verse 30. But God raised Jesus from the dead. God has been at work from the beginning and was at work in the death and resurrection and is now at work in sending the message of salvation. In 30, 32 and 33, kind of a central main idea. And we bring you the good news. That God promised to the fathers that as he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Not a new religion, but a reality. You see, God is the center. You know, I think it's interesting because we're so amazed by Paul's sermon that's recorded here. But think about it. How often do we preach, teach, live like that? where actually God is the center of the story that we're telling. You know what I'm saying? If we're honest. How central is God to your living and being this morning? You know, I, I, could, I could be harsh, but I'll just take myself as an example. Um, you know, the idea that I, I live for God. I'm not ashamed that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I don't think I'm trying to hide that in how I live in the Stillwater community. I don't. I, I don't I'm not perfect at it, but I, but I try to live by that. But I don't know if, <clears throat> if I'm telling the true story of God. You know, I, I get up to the opportunity to speak on behalf of the kingdom, and I stop short. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, there is a God opportunity conversation 
And I don't tell this story. And hear me, I'm not talking about going back to the time of Israel. I'm talking about God being the center and God provided a way for you to have fellowship with Him. And it's through His Son. And He is the prime mover, the God who created this universe. I don't know how often I tell that story. I say this, uh, you know what? I work out at this church and we'd love to have you there. Right? And you go, good job, Paul. You invited them. Oh, I met so-and-so. They came. You invited them. Way to go. But I think God has called us to be more than just inviters to church. He's called us to be a part of a story and to tell a story the way that he tells the story. See, this story in verses 38 and 39 tells us that it brings true freedom and true forgiveness. It's an invitation. And God invites you in to that story. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, we receive forgiveness of sins. And it's, pro it's proclaimed to us in verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed, is justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The reason we have this incredible launch pad to tell the story of Jesus is because God is the supremacy, that he is central, that no matter what is happening in this crazy world in which we live, God is supreme, right? I don't care what kind of message or knowledge you got this week, God is supreme. Lose a job, God is supreme. They, the doctor says cancer, God is supreme. God is supreme. That's our message. It's God. And I love that God, because of the confidence I have that from the beginning, he has set this in time so that we can live in a place like this to proclaim his glory, the supremacy. I think sometimes we read the story of Scripture so often that we fail to be stunned by the way it was written and the way apostles preached it. We know this story backwards and forwards. We can read this story and we could fail to see God. Uh, what, what's the central focus? What's the main theme? No, the point, the punchline is God. The great mover is still moving and he's moving today. You know, there's a lot of reasons I could tell you why this story is central to all of us, right? It's because we believe that Jesus is God's son. He's not just a mere man who lived on this earth. He's not just a great teacher. He was the son of God. Uh, we believe that he rose from the dead and is alive and will never die again. This is what we believe about God. I trust Jesus because I know I have sinned and I need him in his gift of freedom and forgiveness. But I trust God because God has spent centuries putting into place a reliable provision for forgiveness in Jesus. All the talk about fulfillment of prophecy that God started is not irrelevant here. It's God's way of saying, this is my work. The death and resurrection is my plan. It was my idea. God spent centuries putting into place our salvation. So do you love a good story? Right? Do we love... The story of God. I find myself getting very nostalgic all the time. I don't know if it's getting old or just getting fat and old. I'm not sure. It might be both. But I find myself going back and hearkening to 
uh, sitting on hard pews where my dad was preaching when I was a little kid and singing hymns, right? And I just go back to some of the great hymns. I just, I know some great worship today. I mean, this is not a worship hymn issue. It is, the, the hymns is what I grew up on, and there's just some words that just wreck me. And one of them is here. It's called, I Love to Tell the Story of Unseen Things Above, of Jesus and His Glory of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else could do. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Can I read one more verse? It says this, I love to tell the story. It is pleasant to repeat. What seems each time I tell it more wonderfully, I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love, of God and his story. We invite you to be a part of the story. If you don't know him, we invite you to ask those kinds of questions. If you are a part of the story, but you haven't been living like you're a part of the story, I encourage you to act because the great mover has already acted. And we get to be a part of that. Let's pray together. Gracious God Almighty, Father, we love your story. And, I, and it is just amazing to me. The first sermon that Paul preaches is about you only. And how you have been working. Father, may we be bold to preach clearly, with clarity, to teach, to live with clarity, to not stop just before the, the punchline, but actually tell the point that we need you, God, and that you've been working, that you're not uh, somewhere in a distance, that you're actually involved. Father, may we live from your involvement when we speak with boldness and courage. May we cross the line and speak the truth regardless of how it's heard. And may we do that in your glory and in your honor. In your name we pray. Amen.